All right, hello everyone. This is, uh, I think, the 10th episode or 11th episode now of TBD uh, to be determined. Uh, Low Intervention Wine and Craft Spirits podcast. Today, our guest is Jenny Lefcourt from Jenny and Francois. Uh, welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking some time and uh, sitting down with us for a little while. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, we wanted to, you know, like with, we have, you know, producers on, we have importers on, um, we'll probably have other distributors on as well. And it's, it's kind of an industry podcast, but it's, you know, we, we just like to chat and learn about, you know, wine and the mm -hmm. process and, and how it gets on our table, really. Awesome. Um, wine is all about sharing, so. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess for, for, you know, all of the listeners that may, uh, are familiar with you, but don't really know the origin story, you want to, you want to start there and we can, we can kind of jump off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Jenny and Francois Selections is now 21 years old. So <laughs> we're finally of legal <laughs> drinking age. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's been it's been a long journey to the current state of things. Um, so I I was actually an academic. I uh, did a PhD in French film and and uh, <laughs> literature, and I was living. I went to live in France, and of course, like anyone, uh, I think who goes to live in France and loves it. I fell in love with food and wine in France. Um, I just couldn't believe that people sat for an hour for lunch, <laughs> like, and the bistro food and how like you could get an incredible meal for pretty inexpensive, and an incredible glass of wine for pretty inexpensive. And I just, you know, my my family, they were not such good cooks, not really foodies, and. Yeah. Um, so it was like a huge part of me becoming a full-fledged grown-up was um, just the joy of discovering all of that to begin with. And the perfect um, place to do it. So, but more specifically, yeah. absolutely, exactly. Um, and farmer's markets and all of it. I just loved it, loved it. Um, so... Uh, the story I'd like to tell, which is one of the many kind of beginnings of my foray into natural wine, was, you know, so I was living in, in France in the 90s. And at the time, there was no such thing as natural wine. There was no word for natural wine. Mm -hmm. um, there was no natural wine movement. Um but I was literally waiting for the bus after spending hours reading books in the National Library. And right at the bus stop was a bistro. And I'm looking at the posters in the window, and there's a poster for a wine tasting that weekend in the suburbs. So I'm like looking at it and thinking maybe I should write this down. Like, that would be cool to go to a wine tasting, just some random wine wine tasting. And the guy, the, the bistro owner comes out with his apron on and he's like, hey, you know, are you interested in wine? You know, we start chatting and he's like, come in, I want to pour you something. 
And I walk in and literally pours me this cloudy glass of Chenin Blanc from the Loire Valley. And I thought, oh my God, this is wine. This is so good. <laughs> Were you so, in, into wine at that point? Or was, was that kind of like the beginning? I was getting into wine. And I mean, that was connected to other similar stories of like friends pouring us certain wines, which were, you know, in retrospect, natural wines, or a drinking wine at certain bistros, which were, in retrospect, natural wines, um, but sort of getting a feeling for wines that, you know, had more acidity and zip and interest and just easy to appreciate and pleasure, when my really only experiences with wine before that had been these sort of fruit bombs from California or like really big, heavy reds. Like I remember in college buying a Chateau Neuf de Pop for one of my French professors and bringing it to her house. And she was like, oh, this is very uh, big. It doesn't really go with the salad I made for <laughs> dinner. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I did the wrong thing. But um, but so, you know, I really got into wine through natural wine without it yet having a name. Um, and then it was really like, so, I mean, Francois and I went back and, and tasted a lot of wines with this guy and then went to this wine tasting, which is like where I met Hervé Suot for the first time. Oh, wow. Who became, you know, our star producer eventually. But, um, uh, you know, that first wine tasting that we went to with winemakers. And I had been to taste with winemakers in Chablis, where Francois's family had a house. And I should mention that he was, you know, founding partner with me. And I bought him out about 10 years ago. So it's now just me for the last 10 years or so. Um, and he's become a winemaker. Uh -huh. But um in any case, so um, at this wine tasting, going around tasting each of these uh, producers' wines, what they had in common was to say, you know, we work organically in the vines, which means we don't use any chemical um, um, pesticides or herbicides, and we're also pretty hands-off in the cellar. Uh, so we use indigenous yeast and we don't use any of the many additives that are permissible in winemaking. And what was interesting at this tasting, it was really before there was a name for natural wine and before there was like a real movement or organization or group was that they all felt like they were totally alone in what they did. Like go going against the grain. Yeah, they were like, you know, I'm the only one who works like this in Anjou and everyone thinks I'm crazy and I'm kicked out of the Appalachian. So I have to call my wine table wine. And, you know, I sell it to some people in Paris. But, you know, most people in my region think I'm nuts. <laughs> and so they kind of, there was not really a connection between all these different winemakers. And so this was, you know, the late 90s. And after, you know, this turned into a, a movement. But we were really there at the beginnings of this movement. 
before it really took shape. And that was an incredibly exciting thing to me to be part of. And part of it is that I'm a political person. And mm -hmm. so for certain people, I think it's only about taste. For me, it's about taste, but it's also about politics. And I just would never have become a wine importer if it wasn't for this movement, for these people, for what they stood for and what they were doing. And to be part of it, and I think to have helped shaped it, shape it in many ways, um, that just, that became my, my life's work. And I, um, yeah, otherwise I would have probably taught or, I don't know, <laughs> worked for a, an editor or something. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's exciting. Like how, I guess for me is the, the question is like the politics are kind of still happening. Right. Um, yes, for sure. Like how did, like, how does that interplay now do, are, I know a, a lot of winemakers, they're, they're kind of like, well, screw it. You know, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. Yeah. But then there's others that still want those designation. Uh, how does that, how do you, you know, communicate with that, or is that, or is it? Yeah. How do you support? Well, and how does it how does it tie oh, into the to the new uh, the proposed regulation about identifying natural wine as well? Yeah. So in the early years, um, so the Dive Boute, which is this natural wine tasting in the Loire Valley, um, the first year of that, I forget what year it was, but we were there at the first tasting. I went to that tasting for. 20 years. Um, but uh, after, I don't know, maybe a bunch of years, there was a debuté where before it started, somehow we got to be part of this meeting, which was all winemakers, and then the head of the AOC Appalachian uh, governmental Council. organization, like he worked in the Minister of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. Rene Renaud. And he came to this tasting and he's, I remember him saying, are there any journalists in the room? Because I just want to talk to you winemakers. And I thought, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. This is really exciting. And um, what he said was, you know, you guys are making the wines of excellence. He really believed in these people and, and their mission. He said, you're here, you're doing lower yields than anyone else, you're hand-picking, you're not destroying your terroir with chemicals. You are making the true wines of France that truly represent terroir, that truly represent place. Because if you come in with a lab yeast with a certain taste, what does that say about terroir, place, time, weather, nothing? You know, mm -hmm. it's it's making some beverage based on grapes as a you know, but it's not actually an in-goal flavor before that's even harvested. Yeah, exactly. So he's like, I believe that what you're doing is the excellence of France. You're saving French terroir, and yet it's everything turned on its head because you're being kicked out of the Appalachian because the Appalachian was in fact about. Um, about things being similar. So like 
a certain identity. But if that identity, if, if everyone in Anjou, and I use Anjou as an example because Olivier Cousin um, really like almost got fined. <laughs> I mean, he, he ended up getting fined like one symbolic euro for using the name Anjou when he wasn't <laughs> supposed to. But he represents Anjou and everyone else is, you know, machine harvesting and overcropping and using tons of um, synthetic chemical uh, fertilizer and pesticides. And that becomes what is typical of the region. And then what's atypical is this guy who is, you walk around his vines and there's all kinds of bugs and all kinds of flora, fauna, everything growing in them. And he's has a horse that he, you know, he pulls his grapes out on on this sort of sled thing um, so that he's not like compacting the soil and he's doing everything to preserve his terroir, the history and the identity of Anjou. And, and, and the region says to him, you can't call your wine Anjou. You can't say that. You have to call it table wine at the time. I think that's the, the one of the parts that I think gets kind of glazed over in natural wine that I'm most excited about is I feel like there's more identity with where it's from. So like indigenous varieties, um, you know, I feel like the, the producers that are doing natural wine are thinking about, about those things, about how I can go back to basics and work with my environment, not just kind of on my environment. Exactly. Exactly. That's what it's all about. And that's, that's why I do what I do. So like people can live the way they want to live in these places and I can, you know, help them sell their wine and live the life they're living. And, um, but anyway, it was, it was interesting, this, this guy. And so he wanted to create this new AOC of excellence. He ended up passing away and not being able to implement his ideas. And then there was a new person in charge. Um, but I think what's happened in the interim is, you know, a lot, I mean, the natural wine movement has become more mature. And some people are uh, making the choice to leave the Appalachian, not fight to stay in it because it doesn't actually matter for them anymore because they're recognized for their own name and for the good wine that they make. And we can all tell the story of their terroir and it doesn't necessarily have to be written on the bottle, but others have made the choice to fight to change the appellation that they're in, like um, Damien Delancheneau from Grange-Tiffen in Mont-Louis, he became president of his appellation. And so he has instituted all kinds of changes to try to help everyone towards, if not organic viticulture, at least something more sustainable, um, helping to make choices that are uh, less about chemicals and more about <clears throat> um, preserving uh, the Appalachian, the terroir, the health of the terroir, and working together now against frost, which they're fighting against right now in all of mm -hmm. France. It's very sad. Yeah. Um, and Italy as well. I just heard from... <laughs> yeah, the last couple of days have been, been crazy. Unbelievable. So hard. Um, 
So yeah, so some people are sticking with their Appalachian and staying within it, and others are sort of abandoning it. To... Uh, yeah. um, actually just got an email from our Kava producer, Penedes, uh, Azimut and mm -hmm. Soriel, and um, he said, do you care if our Kava still says Kava? <laughs> because <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I want to make a more traditional ancestral method mm -hmm. uh sparkling wine and the kava uh, you know they won't let me do wow. it what was your answer it's hard you know i said yeah. you know if it's a teeny producer you know i don't it doesn't matter at all you know yeah. but if it's but volume it it's, could it's yeah. one of our big volume and i'm a little nervous <laughs> so i said oh I don't know. <laughs> he, he wanted to change all of them or just, just the one? Everything. He's like, Everything. I'll just get rid of the word kava. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if every state and every buyer is ready for that. I know, right? <laughs> Can't you change the revolution from within? Stay with it. Stick with it. <laughs> Maybe just change the C to a K. Uh. That would be kava. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, actually, Molui is, I think, the only appellation that allows for pet nats within the appellation. Hmm. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's a that's a good tidbit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, what can I? I know for us, you know, natural wine, low intervention wine is is a spectrum. Um, yes. There's a lot of different differing values and opinions and you know, bars to, to keep what, I guess, for, for Jenny and Francois, what, what is your, I guess, kind of minimum bar that, that uh -huh. for, for sourcing wine? Um, I'm pretty open. I feel like part of what I do is pushing for change. <laughs> and so, um, like Domaine de la Patience in the south of France are people, this family we've worked with for maybe 20 years. Um, I don't know, a long time in any case. And when I started working with them, they weren't 100% uh, organic. They had this little hill of Merlot that was organic. And so that's the wine we brought in from them. And as they made more organic wines, we bought more and more from them. And I really... You know, I push them, and I'm not going to say I'm 100% responsible for them converting their 60-hectare vineyard to certified organic, but mm -hmm. I I didn't say, oh, no, you're, you don't do what I, I'm looking for. I'm not going to work with you. I worked with them, and now it's, you know, it's one of our best-selling producers. Um, I worked with them, <laughs> you know, pushing for organic and then pushing to allow me to change their label and you know i mean i think part you know part of also us sort of maturing as a company is is realizing what works and what doesn't work and but i don't i don't want to be closed off to people who aren't already 100 percent in mm -hmm. um because then there's no change you know yeah and you're then not it's like helping yes no. facilitate yeah um so that's part of it, and it's just part of my worldview is to kind of have an open mind about about people and and what they do and see evolution as a possibility. Um, but 
I mean, in terms of the definition of strict natural wine, um, for me, yeast is one of the most important things, indigenous yeast. Um, if somebody's going to say they're making natural wine. And it's interesting now because I see my inbox as an, as an importer, national importer now, um, I'm getting a lot of proposals of zero sulfite wines from strange sources. <laughs> oh yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think it's wines that are made that are filtered and fined and not even necessarily organic, but then they don't add sulfur. Um, Just because they see that as a buzzword in the industry so and want to take advantage? Yes. Yes, they see it as a buzzword. Actually, I noticed the other day there was one from Bordeaux that's made by Michel Roland, who mm. is the, he's, he was the flying winemaker who basically made, you know, all of the wine, a lot of the wines that then got 95s and up from Mar Robert Parker. He's a very famous enologist. He probably charges like $100,000 for to people to make their wines. And he always had a technique, which is kind of the opposite of natural <laughs> wine. Um, if anyone's seen the film Mondovino, he's kind of in that, it, it's a good film by Jonathan Nossiter. And it, it's about this, like this guy, Michel Roland, um, he had one way of making wine. He used something called I don't know, in French, it's microgulage. He would like add oxygen to like extract flavors and make a wine bigger. And mm. he, um, he knew what Robert Parker's taste <laughs> was. And so he was hired by a lot of wineries yeah. all over the world in oh, Chile and Bordeaux and the California. And he would fly around saying, you know, microgulage, do this and you will get a 95 in Parker, you know? And, and so I got this email from some uh, negociant or agent in France offering wines without sulfur. And I opened it up and I'm looking at it. And one of the wines is made by Michel Roland. And I'm like, oh my God, what is happening? So, like, I wonder, it's so interesting. I'm curious about the process. I'm really curious too. But I, I mean, I think the point, my, my point is it's not, it's not so much the sulfur that matters the most. I mean, I know a lot of kind of, uh, a new generation of people into uh, natural wine talk a lot about zero, zero sulfur, and that's fine. Um, but what comes first is how do you work in the in the vines? The conversation, you know, the work, the work in the vines, organic or biodynamic in the vines. Number one, number two, you pick your grapes rather than adding sulfur to the harvest to kill off yeast and bacteria, yet let the natural yeast do the fermentation instead. So rather than buying a lab yeast with a specific taste, there's a plethora of yeast doing the job of fermentation and you get something that's to my palate way more interesting, feels way more pure and open and sort of not one single taste it's a lot of things going on that are really connected to the terroir and to the place and so the yeast is really you know that's number one organic or, or biodynamic viticulture not indigenous yeast not adding any of these 300 additives uh -huh. and then sulfur you know if it's a if it's a good year and you don't have rot on your grapes and you've done everything right up to that point then probably you don't need the sulfur but, you know, 
sometimes that's up to the winemaker. It's their, it's their choice. Discretion. Yeah. Um, but you know, given a choice, wines taste better without sulfites. They're just more interesting. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think that's why we're all chatting right now. <laughs> we all have similar probably, value structures. Exactly. But probably not these new uh, no-sulfur wines proposed by me. Probably, probably not. <laughs> we, get, we, get some curious, we get some curious cold calls as well from winemakers and producers that are looking you know, for distribution in the state. And we get some similar things. From, and, and you're just like, this is see what you're doing and this yeah. is interesting it's weird yeah. it's not for us but <laughs> right i wish you luck um yeah um but on the other side of things uh you know i think there's a spectrum of faults uh you know mm -hmm. in in any wine natural or unnatural you know natural wine or conventional wine um and then it's you know uh cloudiness is a fault according to some people. To me, it's not a fault because to me, you take out a lot of the goodness by doing a heavy filtration. You take out a lot of the kind of openness and complexity and just... Um, Extra. Yeah, you, but, but you also kind of straighten it out. You know, you make it more precise by filtering in a certain way. So that's, that's a question of taste. Um, I like unfiltered wines, but you know, not every sommelier will agree. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I had a really interesting conversation uh, right before the pandemic with a, a master sommelier in New York who called me up. He's like, Jenny, you know, I want to give your selection another chance. Like I passed judgment 10 years ago, but maybe things have evolved or maybe I've evolved. He's like, he's, he's genuinely said to me, like, I want to like natural wines because I believe in organic viticulture and I believe in like not adding all this stuff, but yet I don't think I like them, but maybe you can change my mind. And I was like, this is like the best phone call I've ever, <laughs> I've ever had. I like adore this. And so I was like, okay, I'm clearing my afternoon. We're going to taste 25 wines. I want to see, you know, where it goes. He loved every mm. single wine. Great. He loved every single wine. And we had a big conversation like, yes, okay. Um, you know, there's a range of tolerance for certain other faults. Well, certain faults. I mean, these 25 wines had no faults. <laughs> like, I mean, I knew he would like them, but I chose yeah, them yeah, for him. Yeah, you picked a good bunch. I picked the, but also like, I mean, I said to him, you know, there's a range of tolerance for... Mm -hmm things like volatile acidity. You know, volatile acidity can make a wine taste like nail polish. It can make a wine have zero fruit. And then it is, it tastes like, or tastes like vinegar. Then it is intolerable to mm -hmm. me and to pretty much anyone else, I would imagine. But a teeny bit in a wine that's pretty heavy and maybe from a hot year might add a teeny bit of um freshness Raspberry. like a freshness on the palate and not make it so sort of heavy and monolithic and that kind of thing depending on the balance of the wine depending on what it is it doesn't bother me i know it's there and you could say hey that's a fault but on my palate it's not a fault as long as the fruit's still there too 
I mean, you can have these very technical conversations about these things with with people who are trained for wine tasting and detecting these. And it's not like I don't mm-hmm. detect it. I totally do right. detect it. It's just that I tolerate a certain yep. amount of it. Mm-hmm. But past a certain amount, then I then to me, it's a 100% fault. Right. And I, yep. I won't it, drink is it. Is the wine delicious? That's so, um, <laughs> the bottom line question. You know, is right. it delicious? And then is it delicious to me? Yes, maybe to somebody else it won't be delicious. There are certain things that are, you know, what's what's not up for grabs is whether or not there is volatile acidity like there are truths about Mm -hmm. certain wines but then there's taste and like what does your palate tolerate and what does my palate tolerate yeah i was gonna ask uh this because you talk about the evolution sort of 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 natural wine as, as a movement and as uh a product uh so i feel like a lot some of the people in and the quote unquote natural wine is is pretty new to our marketplace because there hasn't just hasn't been a lot in the market prior. So we have these conversations a lot with people. And I feel like uh, in the minds of a bunch of the people that we speak with, there's sort of an uh, there can be a negative association based on wines that they might have had m- many years ago and that sort of set their expectation for what natural wine is. How have you seen? that evolution change from, from the beginning uh, in terms of like the quote-unquote quality of the product or the way they're producing the wines, especially because as you stated at the beginning, these guys seem to be working almost individually like within a funnel because they didn't have a support system. So it seems like they would be trying to, you know, yeah. figure out ways to solve problems on their own and they don't have support to see how people are doing things successfully. Yeah. I mean, the thing about wine is you only get one shot a year. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) You work all year and then you make it and that's it. Then you have to wait another whole year to make, make it again. So there's, there's a learning curve. That's, that's, you know, it's not like something you can practice every day, but what I've noticed about like the producers that we work with is that, I mean, they're all so smart and humble. Like, there's like a constant self-questioning, like, can I do this better? And what if I change this or that? Other winemakers, I mean, I've met a lot of other kinds of winemakers who are conventional winemakers who kind of are like, this is how my father and my grandfather made it, and this is how I make it, you know, or this is how I learned in school, and this is how it's done. And that's a, a really different approach to life and to learning and to winemaking. And for me, somebody who's constantly questioning themselves is, is that's like a smart way to live right. life, I think, you know, like, not to say I don't necessarily Indeed. know the answer, I want to do better again, you know, I want to do better next year. And that's people who are going to be sharing information, asking to exchange information. And that's what a lot of people in the natural wine movement, I think, are like, you know, it's not like, people who are living behind walls with their secret way of making things, which mm-hmm. is a lot of a lot of producers who are like not happy if you bring a bottle from another <laughs> region or not not gonna share exactly what they're doing. But I think natural winemakers are are very much into learning and sharing. And so things have evolved and changed and gotten so much better. But I also think that, you know, our company, um, you know, I as I said, it's it's about taste, and we have a certain taste. 
um, and we're looking for a certain quality and there are certain faults that I won't tolerate. I won't import. Um, you know, I won't say we never ever have like a mousy wine, for example, which is like this kind of strong oxidative, weird puppy breath <laughs> kind of thing. Puppy um, breath, that's a new one. I haven't, ah, that that's comes good from Alice, That comes from Alice firing. That's her term. It's kind of what it is. So it's, it's just, I actually cannot tolerate it. I do not like it. And if I can help it, you know, I won't ever import a wine that tastes that way. I don't, ever, I think other oh, people don't, other importers might not care. Right. Goes back to the tolerability thing. Is there anything that you, mm-hmm. is there anything that you can do while you're, while you're, before you import the wine that to, to make sure, is there any, is it just tasting? Is it experience? Is it knowing the winemaker? Because some can, you know, develop that, you know, on the way, on the yeah. trip, sometimes even later. Um, sure. What, 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 what is like your kind of insight into helping minimize that? I mean, I think, um, you know, we taste as much as we can before importing. Um, that's number one. Um, but yes, things can evolve and change. And, and I think our experience has led us to avoid some of the pitfalls that we maybe had in the early days. Um, for example, uh, there's a method where people ferment in really, really cold temperatures, which was kind of used a bit in the beginning more than now. And those wines like don't stay stable. You know, they kind of evolve and it's really hard to know when they're going to show well. Um, but you know, yes, once in a while a wine will arrive and it won't be the same as when it left the winery. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that happens, you know, sometimes we'll set it aside. And something that I only learned in recent years, like mouse, I thought once you have it, that's it. It will never go away. In fact, it it can go away. Yeah, I mean, we've experienced it a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's weird. It's like there's there's all these different things, like in opinions on how it's created and how it can go away or not go away. But for what we've seen is like movement is a big part of it, is the movement of the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's even, you know, after it's bottled. So a lot of times if things, you know, you'll get a little bit of mouse and just let it sit for a month, two months. Yeah. And, uh, and it's gone. You know, sometimes it's not gone, <laughs> but, <Right>. um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I always want to try to learn more about, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's good that it's happening less uh, yeah. because that's one of the faults for us that we're, that's, we're, we're not excited about. <laughs> now I, yeah, I don't like, I don't like it. <laughs> we try to avoid it at all costs. <laughs> what, so, uh, what, um, Kind of things are on on the horizon for for Jenny and Francois. What like what are you looking at new areas or new producers? Or are you just looking at kind of managing this fire hydrant that's <laughs> that's happening right now? Or um, you know, we are extraordinarily lucky during this difficult year um, to be selling tons of wine <laughs> and. <laughs> It's um, 
people are are drinking wine. And um, I mean, we've just been, we've really grown from our first year, like it's been a steady growth. And um, so we're constantly looking for new wines and adding new wines to our portfolio. Um, so we have quite a few new wines on the horizon, in fact. But um, Phil Sorrell, who, who works with me um, and does um, a lot of the selecting with me, he's, he's been in the industry even longer than I have. He used mm-hmm. to work, work for Kermit Lynch, and he, um, he actually found Marcel up here for Kermit years ago. Um, so he's uh, very much at the origin of the natural wine movement as well. Um, anyway, he, uh, he's like, this is the year of return to terroir. <laughs> so we've been, we've been talking about it that way, just because, you know, with the tariffs that were in place, we really kind of had to put a limit on a lot of the French and well, especially French wines that we mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just too expensive and to sort of seek out new wines in France uh, with this uh, 25% tariff in place was difficult. Now we have a four month rest <laughs> <laughs> while Europe and the US try to negotiate and um, I'm sure they'll find a way out of out of this. Uh, do you think it's gonna? Do you think it's gonna? We're gonna find a way out, or do you? Do, have you heard anything? It's one of those I'm, things that everyone's like, the tariffs are gone, and you're like, yeah. whoa, no, actually, no, they're not. <laughs> they're not totally gone. Um, I'm confident they're gonna go away. Um, knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> because, um, I mean, people who are for tariffs are are the extreme right and the extreme left, and we don't have either of those in power right now. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, most Republicans and Democrats are anti-tariff. That's, you know, they're for it, free trade. It, it was a really bad time for us to have them, especially with, yeah. the, you know, the last year. It was, it was like a double whammy budging yeah. through. Um, we don't, the market here in Nevada is heavily on-premise. Yeah. We didn't have that, that retail yeah. volume that a lot of other markets had so it's rough it, it was yeah. it kind of hit us extraordinarily hard now it's great now now things are slowly opening up and, mm-hmm. and it's great but um tariffs i i don't see, i just can't see how they would help the uh, the american economy or the or the american no. people i mean i actually went to washington dc a bunch of times i testified in front of the United States Trade Commission, and I, I wrote an op-ed about it um, for the New York Times. Um, so I was very involved in trying to get rid of uh, the tariffs, showing that they really hurt the U.S. economy and small business much more than they hurt Europe, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is what no it was intended to them. do because of our three-tier mandated system here in the U.S. with importers, distributors, retailers, restaurants, it's hitting, you know, three tiers of U.S. small businesses, um, these tariffs. So it it was really a terrible thing. And it hurt a lot of a lot of uh, American business. Um, But yes, we have a a pause right now while they uh, try to find solutions. So yeah, hopefully they'll go away. A smarter smarter pause when all the containers are slow down. (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> right. And now That's we have no more containers. <laughs> yeah, they're like, <laughs> yeah, we'll pause it. Okay, <laughs> go jackknife a, a container in the canal and right. then slow everything else down so we can get back to in four months. Oh, it's geez. always something. Oh, my God. The crises this last year and a half. Nonstop. Nonstop. The domestic transport was very bad. It's getting better. Uh, and I can only imagine what international. We I we import coffee for one of my other businesses and thank goodness it's yes, the, the scheduling thank you is for a little... the coffee you sent me. Oh, way yeah, back. you're welcome. <laughs> we enjoyed it. Send very... some more. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> but thank goodness so the scheduling has been, you know, for coffee buying is kind of skated its way around this a little bit, but um, we're getting ready to buy for the for another year here for mm. the summer and oh, good. Gonna be patient. <laughs> That's all you can do is just smile and bear it and plan ahead as much as right. possible. Right. <laughs> I know they're like, let's have a pause and so we're like, we'll, we'll order as much wine as possible. Oh my god, we can only get these few containers going. What's going? <laughs> it's yeah. ridiculous. Crazy. Um, as far as like, um, I wanted to talk a little bit, if you're okay with it, um, about kind of social media and Ooh, kind of how that positives <laughs> and negatives, there's been a lot of very, um, extreme things going on lately with uh, some producers, domestic producers and, yeah. um, also, you know, the Pestlacroix thing and, mm. I think um, I, I want to commend you on on how you handled the <laughs> Pestle Lacroix thing. I think thank you. In a in a time when people were very extreme, I think you were like even keeled and calm and said, "Hey, let's let's talk about this. Let's you yeah. know, let's really Not figure rush, this out." Rush to judgment, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's a crazy time we're living in, and yeah. Um, you know, we want everyone to be equitable and, mm -hmm. and treated fairly, but it's like, uh, how does that happen and at what cost? Well, social media, you know, it's, it's like any other technology. It's a blessing and a curse, and it depends how it's used. Um, you know, it's made everything so much faster, both in terms of people finding us and us finding right. them, you know, mm -hmm. sort of like in terms of creating a, a worldwide natural wine community. It's been pretty like amazing how quickly things go, like producers reaching out to us or connecting with us or us connecting with customers or being able to tell stories in a way that's accessible. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, communicating about new wines coming in and um, you know, what's, what's, uh, unfortunate. Well, I mean, the other side of it is, I think it's, you know, I mean, in terms of the whole, what's come to be known as the cancel culture movement. I mean, I think, you know, people with no power have a way of speaking out to speaking out to power. And that's positive. That's very mm -hmm. positive. You know, I mean, that's kind of, um, that those kinds of social actions, political actions, like against big companies who are not treating their workers correctly, or, you know, exposing power and mistreatment of people um, in a way that gets um, heard 
is much easier. And so that's incredible. That's a great thing. But unfortunately, sometimes, um, you know, Instagram can be the jury and the judge and everything um, goes at such a fast pace that there's no time for conversation. There's no time uh, to make sure all the facts are correct. (laughs) And there's no time for subtlety. And that uh, makes it very unfortunate. And, you know, what we was talking to some friends the other day, I mean, this is in every aspect of our society, um, including Mm -hmm. wine. Mm -hmm. Um, But in academia, really in everything, you know, there's a lot of um, judgment being passed quickly on social media, and it becomes hard to have difficult conversations that are nuanced. Um, Yeah, sometimes I think, you know, those conversations are trying to be had on Instagram, and it's just not the place. Yeah, right. There's just, there's just no nuance, no, no, it's not meant to be a long form discussion. Right. Um, No, you can't. Yeah. Sadly, that's, the the tool that that everyone's using so it's kind of it's hard to it's hard it's hard to compete yeah yeah also some people are not there to actually have that a subtle conversation (laughs) people you know it's like we have almost we have over twenty thousand followers on instagram well that's a good platform for somebody who has not as many followers or you know it's a good platform so let me you know people like use other people's platforms to get their word heard, mm-hmm. what their agenda out there. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that they're trying to use that leverage and it's, yeah. It's one of those things. Well, I hope we figure it out. I hope so. Yeah. yeah you'd like, you'd no, like to see uh, inform- I mean, in terms of decisions. Valentina. Yeah. In terms of Valentina Pasalacqua, I mean, that. You know, I think um, a lot of like documents in Italian were put on Instagram and all of this stuff and all of it was misinterpreted, really. You know, I spent many months kind of um, obsessed (laughs) with this subject of what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, we, you know, uh, that was a a big producer for us in terms of size. So before we started working with her, I sent Phil Sorrell, 25 years in the business, um, to spend three days at Harvest in 2019. He met the harvesters. He saw the work there. You know, we, d- we did our due diligence. We do our due diligence always. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was no abuse. There were no migrant laborers there, first of all, and certainly no abuse of laborers. Her 40 full-time employees adore her mm-hmm. in a region that's... Um, uh, destitute yeah i think they're also i think the big part and this goes with coffee as well is having that discussion on on migrant labor you know Um, we have migrant labor here in the u.s we have yeah i think every country has some form of legal or illegal migrant labor yes i mean the good thing about it is i mean i spent many months researching all these subjects you know since then um I mean, unfortunately, it's like, 
the thing that happens again and again is like the people I mean the people in natural wine are all like writing about this and talking to each other and but like this I I mean I'm almost a hundred percent sure is not a problem in natural wine. I'm not just speaking for my company, but for all the companies who work in natural wine. I don't mm -hmm. think there is any abuse of labor. I mean, people who care about the earth, they're hiring laborers who are skilled. Mm -hmm. Pruning requires skill. Um, harvest maybe doesn't, but at least in uh, Puglia, people who prune sign contracts to be able to harvest as well because they know that, you know, they don't want to do one and not the other. So it's not necessarily a problem in vines there. It's a problem in tomatoes. It's a problem in cauliflower. And Valentina's father started a tomato business late in life, one of his six or eight businesses he had. He got rich in the marble industry. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are 500,000 laborers in Italy harvesting all the food. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and um there's a lot of abuse there's mafia there's horrible things that go on um in california as well you know yeah. our world is we're still living in a a post-colonial world where there is a ton of modern slavery um there are people living in sheds in california picking grapes who have no access to health care, have no access to just a decent life. Um, so there's, there's huge problems. Um, but those huge problems are probably not in natural wine. And so, you know, I think it's a good subject to make people aware of. But mm -hmm. in my research, for example, I found that I found this article in French in a very teeny publication that this couple in Champagne had been found guilty of basically slavery, having people work for slave wages. Um, and they sold the, 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 um, their grapes or juice to uh, Veuve Clicquot. Veuve Clicquot did not get um, sentenced in any way, shape or form. <laughs> And that did not appear in any article anywhere that I've seen yep. of Clicquot. I mean, if we want to do some political action, these are the kinds of companies that we need to take action against, not Jenny and Francois selections or <laughs> Valentina Pasolacqua, unfortunately. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a woman owner of a business, successful business that I've built for 20 years. Um, so that whole thing on Instagram, you know, who does it, who did it, you know, it's not actually political action. Who does it help? Mm -hmm. it didn't help any migrant laborers in Puglia. It didn't hurt Valentina's tomato, father's tomato business. You know, it hurt 40 families who work for her organic winery. It hurt my, uh, my sales reps and my company, but it did not hurt you know, the conventional wine world right. or supermarket world or, you know, sneaker world or <laughs> basically the rest yeah. of the world that is guilty of exploiting people in yeah. horrible ways.
So. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how that happens. It's kind of like, whoa, whoa, hold on a little bit. Like, we're in this position and we're in this, we sell these types of wines because we have these values. Exactly. Um, we have, you know, <laughs> this foresight um, to try to do the right thing or what we believe is the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. What was, what was so interesting care. about that whole thing <laughs> is, right, is that like, that entire thing happened on social media almost alone. So, like, if you saw the post on social media and then tried to jump into normal media to find information or or something in in order to base an opinion or to figure out what was going on, it was it wasn't possible. <laughs> the entire story they were happened. Quoting social media. <laughs> they were, the they writers were they quoting did. social they, media. They, they did write about it. They quoted. <laughs> <laughs> the wrong information. It was totally insane. Yeah. Somebody needs to go do an investigative real piece about where in the wine world this is happening. In my own little research since the months of August, it's happening in Beaujolais. It's happening in Bordeaux. It's happening, you know, it is happening um, in California. Um, you know, and... Uh, I don't think there's much like labor organization in uh, a lot of uh, a lot of countries. A lot of countries. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we need to do some real research and some real political action. So, um, last last one I want to speak about is I guess we, we talked a little bit about it earlier is the effects of. COVID, like how has it changed the way you do business or has it changed mm -hmm. the way you do business at all? Or, um, yeah. And how, how are you moving forward from those? Um, it's hundred, a hundred percent changed how we do business. <laughs> I'm sitting in Westchester <laughs> and I'm a New York city kid. So like, uh, I don't know, yeah. what am I, what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I've been working from home. My husband's here. My, I have a nine year old daughter who, is loving having a backyard. Um, we invested in a trampoline, which I'm enjoying very much. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But um, no, I mean, I've pretty much been working from here instead of like taking the subway to my office. We had one person at a time in the office um, so far. And the sales reps um, were basically working from home, sending emails uh, about new wines, sending bottles directly to to stores rather than running around town up and down the subway stairs with their mm -hmm. wine bags. Um, now people are easing back into tasting a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we, we pretty much, um, you know, our business uh, went over much more to re the retail side. Unfortunately, our, our dear friends in the restaurant business have really suffered. It's really hard some people who are not coming back, some people who are coming back and are trying to fight it out, um, some people who got very creative in terms of how to how to change their restaurants to to survive all this. But um whole business model really. Yeah. It's it's rough. But yeah, so we've we've really um been functioning in a different in a different way and we've learned a lot about being more efficient, I think. You know, mm -hmm. the upside of it all is that we really um, have found, I mean, we're lucky to be a 20-year-old company because our customers know and love us. 
and they have confidence in us and confidence in our wines. So we can, you know, all the sales reps can call and say, hey, or email and say, this just, this just got in. How many do you want? <laughs> and everyone yeah. orders their wine. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're very lucky, but, you know, we're, we're riding on the reputation we've built. And um, we have a lot of incredible, wonderful partners who are working hard through all of this. That's great. We're, we're excited. We're, we're very thankful to represent the portfolio out here in Nevada. So it's, it's been, we're, been great. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, uh, I feel, um, on our end, like, you know, it was, you know, COVID was pretty, pretty rough just because it's such a high on-premise market, but yeah. now, now it's, I'm glad that everyone's getting vaccinated. Yes. Please get vaccinated. Yes, everyone. Please. <laughs> please. And um, and well, we're. I feel very lucky to be working with you guys, and for you to be spreading the spreading the natural wine word, <laughs> revolution, yeah. and um, and uh, I'm glad you're. You know, you're making it through this this difficult year where you guys are, because I'm sure it's it's really rough. It was. I'm. I'm. I was. I was bullish for a little too early, I think. But it's coming. It's now. It's coming. It's all happening. Where it. It's our market now is is almost like a. It's like a fire hose. It was like off, and now it's on, and you're just like, okay, let's do this, and let's get wine in, you know, as yeah. much as possible. So we're thankful. We're thankful hmm. that we can just work and. This is this is our dream. This is my dream, and mm, so just to be able to to work is 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 exciting for me. Oh, I'm really glad to share the dream with you guys. <laughs> yeah, really nice talking, chatting. Yeah, and, uh, you want to um, let everyone know how how they can contact uh, Jenny and Francois for find more information about yeah. about what you do. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Jenny Francois. At Jenny and Francois, Jenny Francois with no and. <laughs> Our website is jennyandfrancois.com. And you can email info at jennyandfrancois.com. We're always happy to help you find our wines. We're in pretty much every state um, working with uh, great uh, partners like Alt Imports and wonderful retailers and restaurants across across the U.S. Hey. Cool. I have one follow-up hard-hitting question, though. Yeah. All right. <laughs> French New Wave, 400 blows or breathless? <laughs> I, I love both. I'm not taking sides. I absolutely adore both of them. <laughs> Godard, Francois Truffaut. I'll watch them any day. <laughs> Hard to go wrong. I just showed my daughter Jacques Tati. Uh, movies, which are really wonderful, and not too many words. Um, <laughs> they're really great. Traffic, if you don't know it, traffic. traffic. No, great I haven't film. seen that one. <laughs> All right, I'm writing that down. <laughs> nice. Awesome. <laughs> thanks. Thanks guys. so much, Jenny. All right, thanks, Jenny. See you soon. All right, bye. Bye, bye.